Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We make hundreds, sometimes thousands of decisions a day. What to wear, what to eat, what route to take to work, and what to put on our to-do list. But these are tactical decisions. They get us from point A to point B. But what about the big strategic decisions, the big ones that just might impact our lives and the lives of others now and for many years to come? The decisions about who we marry, where we want to live, what career we want to pursue. These are often irrevocable or at least profound decisions that have long-term consequences. How do we make these decisions? And for that matter, how do leaders, CEOs, generals, and even presidents make decisions? Is there a right or wrong way? Do algorithms and technology make it easier or harder? The fact is, oftentimes, by the time all the facts are in, the time for optimum or imaginative action may have long since disappeared. The disconnect, then, between external events and our ability to process them somehow lies embedded in the decision-making process. From George Bush saying he's the decider to battlefield commanders from the halls of business schools to the basement of the Pentagon, from leaders that operate only on instinct devoid of facts to those that suffer from analysis paralysis. Our lives are shaped by decisions we and others make, but could we do better? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Stephen Johnson. Stephen Johnson is the best-selling author of 11 books, including Wonderland, How We Got to Now, Where Good Ideas Come From, and The Invention of Air. It is my pleasure to welcome Stephen Johnson back to this program to talk about his newest work, Farsighted. How we make the decisions that matter the most. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it's so great to be back. That was a beautiful introduction. I'd like to steal that and actually put it into the paperback version of the book. <laughs> it's all yours. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> when you set out to do this, and it's something I wondered in reading it, is is this a psychological conversation or is this a scientific conversation? Or both? And what percentage? Yeah, well and and actually I would say I would complicate that. Um, I would say both, and also add that it's also a, a an artistic, a, a kind of a literary conversation as well. Because one of the the arguments that, that the book makes at the end is that um, novels um, are actually reading kind of classic novels uh, is a is a really wonderful way to kind of train the mind to to make better decisions when if we're talking about those big life-changing decisions um, because narrative kind of literary narrative gives us um, these in-depth kind of slow motion portrayals of people making complex decisions. Um, and so they in a sense give us a simulation or practice at making these choices. So, so it's a mix. It's really, I mean, like a lot of the books that I write, it's, it's cross-disciplinary, you know, it's, it's a mix of science, psychology, of course, which is a kind of science, I suppose, and uh, brain science, behavioral economics, but also uh, literary uh, creation. It's, it's interesting when you talk about the literary part of it, the other question it raises within the decision-making construct is the degree to which decision-making is so much a part of creativity and how that works. Yeah, there, there, you know... It, this is one of the things I didn't really realize was going to happen until I got in the middle of writing the book. So, you know, a lot of my work over the years, uh, much of which we've discussed on this show, is, has been about innovation and, and kind of 
technological creativity, right? Coming up with new technologies um, that change the world in all these interesting and unpredictable ways. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of my work has looked at the history of innovation, and so. It, and through that research, I've learned a lot of things about how people can become more creative and, and more inventive and think of, you know, new solutions to problems I might not have thought of otherwise. And a lot of those techniques actually overlap with the kinds of techniques people need to use in making complex decisions. Because the, in a sense, what you're trying to do with the, one of the key things you're trying to do when you're making it one of these life-altering decisions is um, not trust your initial assessment of the situation, right? <laughs> because you know, however smart you are, if you're at one of these crossroads where you're contemplating a choice that might reverberate for, you know, 10 years or longer, um, there is no doubt you're missing something. There's some variable, there's some probably multiple things about the decision, about its consequences, about maybe alternate options that you might have that you haven't even thought of yet. Um, there's something about it and probably many things that, that haven't occurred to you yet. And so the part of the process that you have to go through in making a complex decision is um, forcing yourself to see the world from new perspectives, to see the problem that you're contemplating from new perspectives. And that's very similar to the, to the process of creativity and innovation. Which leads to the question of because there's so many things that, you, that we don't see, in the decision-making process. There are so many kind of known unknowns, as it were, that one wonders if you would turn out the same, if events would turn out the same, if you just flipped the proverbial coin. Yeah, well, that that is, I believe, from what I have looked at and the folks that I've talked to and the studies I've looked at, I think there is a compelling argument that that we do have strategies now that empirically, um, you know, on average lead to better outcomes. So, so let me give you one example, right? Um, there's a, there's a great, uh, on the kind of business decision-making side, there's a, um, uh, kind of management professor, um, scholar now, I believe he's now retired named Paul Nutt. And, he, he's kind of like the Darwin of business decisions, right? He's, he's built this ulterior. He, he studied, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands probably of uh, decisions that executives made in, in businesses um, and studied the approach that they took and studied the outcomes of the decision. And one of the things that he found from this research is that um, – there is a serious penalty in terms of the long-term success of a decision if you only contemplate one option. So he calls them whether or not decisions, right? You know, it's just, uh, you're like, should we do this or not? And it turns out those decisions end up being um, failures more than 50% of the time, like 25% of them are, are judged as successful decisions. And the, the easiest way to increase your, success rate basically in these decisions is to have a phase in the decision-making process where you try to uncover other options. So you turn it from a whether or not decision to a which one decision, right? And if you contemplate, if you go through a phase where you actively try and uncover, you know, uh, a, a third option or fourth option, um, your success rate goes up dramatically. So, 
and, and there are a lot of studies in the book that kind of go through kind of similar research. So that to me, the, the whole body of that research suggests that, you know, yes, it, you can never be a hundred percent confident with these decisions. And maybe it would have turned out better if you just flipped a coin in this one particular choice, but the odds are in your favor. If you use some of these strategies, uh, there's a, there's enough research behind them, I think, to, to really believe in this. In, in the kinds of approaches that I talk about in the book. It's an interesting idea because there's, there's a subset of that where people have argued that if you have an intractable problem, if you can't solve a problem, if you can't get to a decision, that sometimes the solution is to turn that into a bigger problem, which then might lead to a decision. Yeah, well, you end up, yeah, you, you, you sometimes end up with these <laughs> kind of... Um, loops or, or uh, escalating kind of problems where you look at the problem so, so rigorously that you end up discovering an even kind of like bigger path. And, and I think there, there is a danger. Look, I, I don't want to, part of what I'm arguing in the book is to take time with these decisions, think of it as a process, go through different phases, go through a mapping phase, go through a predicting phase, um, which we can talk about in more detail. Um, but you also don't want to get you don't want to get stuck, right? You don't want to get into a situation where you, you know, you're just kind of endlessly analyzing the problem. Um, uh, there's a great, Jeff Bezos apparently has this great rule of thumb that he tells people about at Amazon for making decisions, which is what he calls the 70% rule, which is, you know, wait until you get to 70% certainty about a choice um, and then make it. Don't, don't wait until you have 100% certainty because you will never get to 100% certainty and thus you will never choose anything. Uh, so you want to, you know, you want to get to a certain threshold of certainty, but you don't want to get all the way there or else you'll get stuck. The other part of it is the degree to which our life experience and what we bring to trying to make a decision and, and, and how different experiences lead to different decisions, sometimes even with the same facts. Yeah. And that, and, and look, that is one of the reasons why, um, and this is a key theme of the book, um, is why having different life experiences um, shape the decision you're, you're contemplating, right? Having a diverse group of people help you make the choice. Um, that, that, you know, there is a really rich body of kind of social science and, and group psychology that uh, it sometimes goes under the rubric of diversity trumps ability. <laughs> but a smart group of like-minded people um, will make worse decisions than a less smart group of diverse people um, because there's something about the different life experiences, as you say, um, that diversity brings to the table. And that diversity can be in the form of ethnic diversity or gender diversity, but also intellectual diversity, professional diversity, different ways of seeing the world, different perspectives, different fields of expertise. Um, and when you get an interesting eclectic group of people, it's a little bit like the team of rivals idea mm -hmm. to some extent from, uh, from Lincoln. Um, when you get those different perspectives looking at the problem, they're going to uncover variables or potential consequences that you wouldn't have been able to see given your own background, given your own experiences. Um, and so it's, it's, it, and it's, it's, you know, this is a political point as well, right? You know, when we see, I don't want to, you know, name names here, name administrations here, but when we see, you know, a political body that is made up of people who all come from the same background or look the same or all men, um, 
there's a natural tendency and an appropriate tendency to say, oh, well, that's not a good thing. We want to have more diversity so that we can have, you know, equal representation or we can have role models for people that they can succeed in society. But it's also true, in addition to those things being true, it's also true that that like-minded group, that homogeneous group, is going to be less far-sighted, less intelligent in the decisions it makes on average um, than, a, than a more eclectic, more diverse group. Is there a danger, and you spend a, a lot of time in Farsighted talking about how the military makes decisions, how generals make decisions, of using previous examples, and, and sometimes that's positive and sometimes it's negative. It's the classic story of fighting the current war based on the lessons of the last one, and that's not always the best example. Yeah, you know, that's a, yeah, look, that's, that's a really important question that, that I wrestled with a lot in just writing this book, right? So this is a book that it has a lot of historical stories. I think it's fun to read. I think it, you know, it, um, it, I, I think people will find some of the science interesting and the storytelling interesting, but it's also supposed to be helpful, right? It's supposed to give people, you know, advice on, on how to make decisions in, in their own lives. And just by the nature of writing a book and the nature of people's complex life choices, I don't know the people who are reading this book, right? I don't know their choices. Like, right. I don't know who they are, right? I don't know the details. And so I tried to really wrestle with that. And I talk about that in the book in some detail, which is, you know, how can something like this be useful if, if every major life decision is unique? You know, it's a fingerprint. It's a snowflake. It's its own unique constellation of things. What are the over, what, what's the use of overarching kind of principles or, or methods when every decision like this is, is so unique? And where, where I ultimately came out, and I really, I almost didn't write the book in the middle of the research because I was kind of stuck on this problem. But what I eventually realized is that all of the strategies that science has uncovered and that I write about in the book are in one way or another ways of seeing, ways of perceiving the problem tricks to get your brain to understand it with more nuance or from different angles, um, tricks to get your brain better at predicting or overcoming some of the biases that human beings have, confirmation bias and so on, um, overconfidence, groupthink, all these things that plague us. And those are just generally applicable techniques. Um, your decision that you're facing in your life is yours. It's unique. It's never happened before. Um, but these techniques I do believe will help you understand that unique constellation to see it more clearly, whatever the particular variables happen to be. Right. The other danger, I suppose, you talk about confirmation bias and some of those things that enter into it. The other thing is, is kind of the comfort factor. If we've made decisions once or twice or hundreds of times and they've given us certain results that we're happy with, we tend to then use that construct for other life decisions, and that's not always the best either. Yeah, although, look, I think, I think, if, um, I think if people have developed a technique that they use and that they've used in the past that has worked well for them in making decisions, um, I don't want to, I don't want to take away from that. Um, the problem that I think most people have is that they don't have a technique or they have a very simple technique. I mean, the book starts with this kind of funny story about Darwin uh, uh, in, in the 1830s um, in the middle of, you know, discovering <laughs> natural selection. 
in the, in his scientific notebooks from this period, he has this one page where he uh, jots down notes on another important idea, which is whether he should get married or not. And he basically makes a pros and cons list for getting married, which is very funny, and it's because it's, it's a little dated in some of his values. But um, but I, I started that at the beginning of the book because the pros and cons list is you know, is the one technique that most of us have probably learned to make a complex decision in our lives. And that, so by definition, it's like a technique that's like 200 years old. It hasn't really changed. Um, and, you know, it's useful, but there are actually a lot more developed techniques that we can use for making decisions like that. And so if, if other folks have a, strat- a set of strategies that they've used in the past that have really worked, then I think actually that is some empirical evidence from your own life that, you know, maybe you have figured out a technique for making a complex decision. The problem is most people don't have a technique. Most people just kind of go with their gut. They talk a little bit informally with their partner or their friend about it. um, And then they decide and they don't go through um, some of the stages that I talk about in the book. Um, They don't have, you know, a really uh, an approach to the decision. Um, and, and that's what I think is missing for, for most people. It's not sufficient, I think, to go with your gut in decisions of this magnitude. Mm-hmm. How important is collecting data or information in the process? What have you found? I, there's an initial phase that is very important, which is um, what you kind of alluded to before, which is this mapping phase. And, uh, and in, in that phase, you, you are really trying to understand all the different variables that may, you know, kind of come into play in, in the choice you're confronting, as well as trying to understand if there are other options, which we talked about before, you know, trying to turn it from a whether or not decision into a which one decision. And in that stage, it's sometimes called the um, divergence stage because you're not trying to um, decide yet. You're not trying to narrow your options. You're not trying to figure out what the key variables are. You're just trying to discover as many possible things as possible. Um, and, and then the second and third phases are about kind of narrowing and trying to figure out what you really want to do. But to, to put your brain in a state for a while, like I'm not going to make this choice for another three weeks. Um, this week and next week or this month, I'm going to just be looking for as many different angles, uh, uh, at this as I can, talking to as many different people, bringing in an interesting eclectic mix of people to help me make this choice to, to expose new variables that I might not have seen at, you know, at first glance. When you do that, talk a little bit about what you found is the relationship between personal decisions and business decisions or military decisions. Is the process the same or, or is it different? I, I think it's, um, I think it is, m- m- th- th- there's more similarity than you, than one would think. Um, I, you know, there's obviously, you know, if you think about Darwin deciding whether to get married, there are, you know, a, a emotional components to that decision. There are, you know, romantic sexual components to that decision that, that probably shouldn't be involved in most business decisions or military decisions. Um, but actually I think there's a lot, there's a lot to learn from those kinds of choices. So there, you know, there's this, uh, thread running through the book about the, the bin Laden raid, um, during the Obama administration, because the, the decision process 
um, that the administration went through in in first deciding whether or not bin Laden was in the compound in Pakistan, and then the decision of what to do about it once they reached a certain level of confidence that it, that it was bin Laden in this compound. Um, that whole process was really run very actively as a as a process, um, and they used consciously a lot of the strategies that uh, that I talk about in the book. Um, they had a, a clear uh, divergence phase where they tried to come up with there's kind of fascinating series of exercises they did where um, Leon Panetta kind of challenged everybody and made them come up with alternate interpretations for who this guy, this suspicious guy they thought was Bin Laden might be. Like, you know, a lot of people were starting to be convinced that it was Bin Laden. And he was like, no, no, no. I want you guys to come up with stories of who this person could be. And in all these stories, he's not Bin Laden. And going through that exercise of trying to imagine um, kind of counterfactual scenarios or trying to imagine, you know, kind of contrarian scenarios um, was a really important part of the process. In the end, they ended up feeling confident that they'd made the right choice. Um, but because they had challenged their assumptions, because they had spent time probing kind of the levels of uncertainty with this, this really key choice, they ended up um, making a much more informed decision in the, in the end. One of the things that becomes clear in all of this is the decision-making, whatever the process is, whatever works for the individual or within an organization, that it takes a significant amount of work. And oftentimes when we hear people talking about they just make decisions from instinct or their gut or what have you, there it becomes clear that that's really a kind of a lazy way out. Yeah, it, and it, uh, it's easier you know, and, and I actually think, I, I, I think there is a role for instinct here, um, but it's kind of informed instinct is the way I would think about it. So in the book, I have kind of, there are three phases, right? We've talked about two of them, really mapping, predicting, and then deciding, right? So you map all the variables, then you, then you predict the outcomes um, from the various different options that you see. And you, there are a couple of different exercises there, which we can talk about potentially. And then you have to decide. And in the decision stage, there are some techniques that I talk about, about how to kind of weigh all the different variables and, and actually make a decision. Some of them are almost kind of updated versions of the pros and cons list that do a little bit better job of weighting your, your values that are important to you. But honestly, at that stage, if you've gone through the, the, the slower exercise of coming up with variables, getting diverse perspectives on the problem, predicting different outcomes. If you've gone through that exercise, what your gut is telling you at that point, I think you, you might very well be, you know, well served by listening to your gut at that right. point, because you have built up this wider perspective on the problem by going through the initial exercises. But, um, but it's the danger is just going with your gut right at the top right. and not going through the process of, of giving your, your sense of intuition, uh, more more data to process. Right. I mean, it does require, or it should require, going through the process. It's a little bit like, if you talk to business executives, it's a little bit like writing business plans. Oftentimes, the plan doesn't really reflect what evolves for the business, but if you hadn't gone through that exercise, you wouldn't have the knowledge, the information, the instinct to go forward. It's exactly right. And, and in fact, I think what, one of the arguments that 
that I make in Farsighted is, in a sense, the, the real way to do it is to write multiple business plans, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, this is, this is this whole field of scenario planning, uh, which is a lot of the practitioners of are in the Bay Area. Um, and, you know, one of the techniques that people use in scenario planning, which is a business technique, but I think you can actually apply it in your own life, is you, you, you imagine multiple scenarios for each um, option you're, you're weighing, right? Don't just write the plan based on this is how we think it's going to work. It's going to be great. Um, also write a plan where you choose that option and things go really, really badly and kind of map out that negative scenario and imagine what that's like and force yourself to contemplate that negative scenario and to tell that story. It's a really narrative kind of art. And the, the other thing that I love, this is, this is kind of a cool trick. The, Peter Schwartz talks about this, who's a Bay Area a guy. Um, in scenario planning, sometimes the strategy is you tell three scenarios, one where things get better, one where things get worse, and one where things get weird. Right. <laughs> and and, and I, I love that. It's such a great idea because it, just thinking about because the future is so hard to predict with these complicated decisions, whether it's business decision or, you know, a personal decision. Um, and just forcing your mind to come up with a future set of events that are weird, <laughs> you know, it, it, it unlocks some. Uh, you know, kind of perspective on the problem that you wouldn't necessarily have uh, come up with in in that initial gut assessment of the situation. And what are you finding, finally, about how this is being taught today, whether it's in business schools, whether it's what psychiatrists and psychologists are telling their patients, how is this being taught and, and, and dealt with today? Well, I think the biggest problem, actually, is that it's not being taught. Um, you know, business school is, is certainly a place where decision-making is taught. Um, and, you know, yes, if you are trained as a, some kind of psychologist, um, you, you will have some expertise in helping people make decisions. But I don't understand why this isn't a required course in every high school mm-hmm. in this country uh, for a couple of reasons. Because, I mean, first off, it is no matter what you do in your life, whatever you end up doing, what, whatever your profession is, making better long-term decisions is going to be a skill that will be invaluable, right? As, as close to the definition of kind of wisdom as, as we have, as they make wise long-term decisions. And the other thing about it is that, it's, as I hope the book shows, it's a, it's a wonderfully multidisciplinary topic, right? You would take that course on decision-making and you would learn about neuroscience and you would learn about behavioral economics and you would learn about probability and you would learn about literature and, and narrative um, and evolutionary history and the, and the brain and, uh, you know, fMRI imaging of the brain and all these different fields. Um, and that, that itself would give you more perspectives um, because of the multidisciplinary nature of it. So I think I, I hope to do a little bit more work on this going forward. It's one of my pet projects now is thinking about you know, what a high school, uh, you know, core required course in decision making would really look like, because it seems like that that would be a, a great addition to, um, you know, any any educational experience. Stephen Johnson, his new book is Farsighted, How We Make the Decisions That Matter the Most. It's just out from Riverhead Books. Stephen, always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Yeah, it's great to be back. Thank you.